With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. As always, we are very appreciative of any time that you are willing to give to us that, uh, you know, you go through your busy day and you decide that it's time to watch a little bit of tactics. And uh, we certainly appreciate that. If you do want to help us out, if you like the show, then be sure to subscribe. If you haven't subscribed yet and you like the show, then what are you waiting for? It's almost like you're getting a free ride here. So uh, if you're going to be watching the show for free, which I do offer, I'll ask is that you subscribe and that does help us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube alike also would help us very much. And we do certainly appreciate it. If you are uh, listening to us on podcast on audio only, remember that five stars is the amount of stars that you want to give us. Um, if you already like the show, just, uh, you know, exaggerate a little bit and that's perfectly okay too. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a very jam packed show today. It's interesting because I'm not typically a crime reporter kind of guy like you know I, I don't do the whole shtick like nancy grace and and some of the others that are really like super zero end on on crime stories i don't do that that often i'm really more of a politics guy and that's the kind of thing that interests me if you're watching my show and have been for a while that's probably kind of where you are but i do think that there's some interesting implications of a crime story that happened quite a, a long time ago, specifically because there was an execution yesterday in the state of Alabama, which are very rare. I believe that, if I'm not mistaken, in the year 2019, we only had two executions in the entire state. And, you know, that we are a state with 4.8 million people. And so the fact that, well, actually, I need to update that because we've had a census since then where I believe just just barely over 5 million. But either way, the state of Alabama with uh, Willie B. Smith is one of the very few people, I believe he's the only person so far this year to be executed in the state of Alabama. And so this is a rarity. This happened at 6 p.m. yesterday. So, you know, looking at the clock right now, it's been about 24 hours since he was executed. I assume that they went through with that because it, they, they were saying they would right up to the lead up of it. There was back in February a last minute, and I mean within the span of a, less than an hour, where the Supreme Court came in and ordered them to stop. I did not see any news about that, so I'm going to assume and operate as though that happened. I looked for updates on this story and didn't see any. So it's you know possible that that was stayed, but so far as I know, as of 6 p.m. yesterday, Willie B. Smith was executed by way of lethal injection. And it's important to know a little bit of the background going into this story. So Smith was convicted of kidnapping and killing a woman named Sharma. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Sharma Ruth Johnson. And this was back in 1991. So this is a while ago. I mean, 1991, just to give you a, a little bit of scope and context, my little sister who just got married 
uh, about a month ago. She was born in 1991. I was two for half of the year in 1991 and, and three for the, the rest of, of that year. So we're talking about quite a, a ways back. We're talking about something that is a, a long time ago. You know, here I sit as a 32-year-old and I was, was three when this happened. And so, you know, just give you some some scope and some context. This is something that took place quite a while ago. It's not like we uh, convict somebody and then don't give time to adequately assess whether or not the evidence was there. I've actually spoke to the chief justice of the state of Alabama, Tom Parker, and he kind of gave me a layout of how complicated it is to get the death sentence and to actually execute someone in the state of Alabama. There is an extremely high, almost stupidly high, burden of proof. And, and I think that's a good thing, because if we're going to talk about the ultimate removal of a person's right, because they have been proven that they cannot be trusted with it, and of course, the greatest and most fundamental right is the right to life, then we better be darn sure that the person we're executing actually does deserve it. And so I think that it's good that we have those fill safes in place. But if you look at the details of this particular case, it's fairly unsettling. Uh, this person who was the sister of an Alabama detective, I'm not sure if that was part of the motive for this individual Smith kidnapping and killing this young lady, but kidnapped her, shot her, and then was her body was found burning inside a car that he had apparently shot her and then set it ablaze. So kind of a gruesome murder. And definitely the 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 details surrounding this really does depict somebody that is of a depraved mind. And that is truly sad coming from this and that this happened in the state of Alabama. I really feel horrible for the family because it's bad enough to lose a loved one regardless of how it is. It's even worse when that is done in, in a way that they were murdered by somebody that they had intent and they went out of their way to kill somebody that you loved and care about. And even worse, when they take it to the next level and desecrate the body in some way. You know, this guy tried to, to burn the his victim after being shot. And so it, it clearly shows a very disturbed person based on this. He was set to be executed back in February, but as I kind of hinted at a second ago, what wound up happening is the Supreme Court of the United States stalled it. And their rationale was that his chaplain was not allowed in the room. Now, this was a new rule that was put in place due to COVID restrictions. Apparently, there were some new mandates that had to do with you had to be an institutionalized chaplain. I honestly, I'm a minister myself. I don't even know what that means. And I'm somebody that has investigated being a chaplain for various hospitals, that kind of thing. Um, you know, never actually wound up going through with it, but it's something that I have done a little bit of dabbling in. And I, I guess what they're trying to say is, that it has to be a chaplain that is employed by the institution they're talking about. So it couldn't have been his chaplain. And there was a, a big brouhaha in the Supreme Court over whether or not this person's rights were indeed being violated. And so to go to that, this is AL.com reporting on Elena Kagan, this one of the Supreme Court justices of the United States. Smith's first execution date was set in February of this year. That execution was halted just before midnight on February 11th in the SCOTUS ruling that granted Smith a stay. Justice Elena Kagan said that the law, quote, guarantees Smith the right to practice his faith free from unnecessary interference. Three other justices joined Kagan in the ruling. 
Justice Brett Kavanaugh, along with Justice John Roberts, dissented. So on this, I'm not sure exactly how all of this works. I'm, I'm not an expert. Like I said, I'm, I'm much more, I'm, I consider myself much more an expert and I don't, you know, expert is being generous. I'm, I'm more well-versed in the proceedings of the Supreme Court as it comes to things of more of a political nature, because that's my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm not really well-versed in criminal law. And so I'm just kind of an outsider looking in on this, but here's what I'll say just based on my initial reaction. This seems like something that I would say is bizarre and I would be opposed to the Supreme Court stepping in, not because I disagree with their ruling, primarily because I disagree with the Supreme Court getting involved and interfering in what is otherwise a state jurisdiction issue. I don't really like that. I don't know if Justice John Roberts or Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote any of that in their dissent. And I also don't see that there was anyone else. So it could be that the other justices chose merely to abstain from giving an opinion on this one at all. I'm not sure exactly if that is the case. I do know that this thing was done very last minute. So it's not as though the Supreme Court actually heard the case. It was that they granted an emergency, you know, hang on here, basically, is the way that they handled it. And so with that, Justice Kagan making the argument that his freedom of religion was violated considering he was not allowed to have his chaplain, the person that he wanted there with him in the room during his execution. So here's what I'll say on this. I don't like the Supreme Court stepping in on this. I think that this is an overreach of the federal government, specifically the Supreme Court, uh, stepping in and, and telling the state what they have to do. However, I will say that I think in, in the spirit of what they're talking about, I actually wind up agreeing with Justice Kagan. I do think that it actually is a good idea, and I do think that it's something that we ought to do as a society, that if somebody is going to be executed, that more or less we should, be, we, we should allow the people that they want there to be there. And this is especially true when you're dealing with people that are family members and people of their religious affiliation to, to be there with them if they have a preacher or maybe an elder at their church, maybe somebody at church that they're very close to. I can see why that person would want them able to be present there. And I do agree with the spirit of what Kagan is saying in the sense that his chaplain should not have been barred from this. I think that that is correct. I disagree with the Supreme Court doing that, but I get the argument is essentially what I'm saying. And I, I, I tend to strictly on principled grounds wind up siding with Kagan on that. And I, I don't know if it's actually a violation of practice of religion, I guess. And, and maybe this is because there's not really a counterpart of this for the, the church that I attend. There are some religions where I could see that being the case. I don't know if this guy was a Catholic. If he was, there is such a thing as last rites. And so there is a, a near-death thing that is a, a religious ceremony that takes place that is given to the person. And so maybe that was a factor. I don't know. I don't think that most Protestant churches or most non-denominational churches like myself would have had something akin to that. But either way, whether there's an actual ritual or not, that is something that I think ought to be allowed for people that are undergoing execution. So I think that Kagan is making the right argument. I just don't think that Kagan herself is the person that ought to be making it since she is a federal judge, a Supreme Court justice, rather than somebody within the state of Alabama that actually has jurisdiction to do that on this particular matter. 
I will say this, though. There is a profound irony in Justice Kagan, who is one of the more liberal justices, especially considering how she has ruled on things in the past, using freedom of religion as her rationale for why this execution should be given some kind of pause here. That's pretty rich, coming from Kagan, because she has sought to destroy or completely ignore the argument that freedom of religion, for example, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, should even be a consideration, just regardless of what that person believes, regardless of, of how they practice their faith, doesn't matter, that person should be forced to do whatever liberal agenda item that we want for today, and freedom of religion, you're just using that as a, a shield for bigotry. That's the argument that these people make. They finally found a case where they actually believe freedom of religion is something that ought to be considered when considering whether or not someone's rights are violated. So congratulations to Elena Kagan for once in her life actually citing the First Amendment. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. It's just, I do find that pretty ironic. And on top of that, I do find it also ironic that for the first time, they finally, someone on the left finally found a COVID restriction that they don't like. Uh, you know, it just seems like any kind of COVID restriction, regardless of what it is or how stupid it is or how little science is that it has to back it up, doesn't matter. They like every COVID restriction, no matter how dumb it is. The, the completely arbitrary six foot, six foot thing, the mass thing that has never been proven to have efficacy on any level. There, there's no science to back that one up. Yet they like all of them except for this one where they see somebody that they feel is being victimized and thus they, they see, whoa, your COVID restriction against chaplains being in the room, that's got to go. And again, I actually wind up agreeing with Kagan on this, on, you know, that his chaplain should be allowed. It's just funny to me that all of a sudden they're like, ooh, COVID restrictions bad and religious freedom very, very good. Again, this just portrays the fact that these people are activists. They don't actually care about the rule of law. They just care about their agenda item being met. And part of the reason that there is the motive to stop this execution from coming is, by and large, liberals tend to be against the death penalty regardless. And on top of it, this particular person is, you know, the, the tour de uh, flavor of the month here which is a, a black person that is being executed by the American justice system. And on top of that, there is some concern, and, and by the way, we're going to go through this, I think somewhat legitimate concern, that this person's mental faculties may not be up to snuff. They may not actually, in, in other words, this person may, may should have been spared the execution because he's not mentally competent here. Um, we'll debate that back and forth, but my point is, because of that, and because they see this person as someone who is being victimized, despite the fact that he has victimized others, despite the fact that this person in their mind is being victimized, then they want to reach out and stop the execution. And they're using the, the COVID restrictions, bad religious liberty, good argument. That, that is pretty funny, you have to admit. Um, but there are questions, as I mentioned, about this person's mental capacity. So there, there's been some debate as to where exactly it is. Some person placed it as high as 74. Another person placed it as low, or sorry, as high as 72, as low as 64. So this person has a, a fairly low IQ. And typically, 70, 75, somewhere in that range is considered mentally handicapped in some way. And so there is a legitimate concern here for whether Willie B. Smith actually has the 
the, the mental ability to understand the gravity of what he did, why it was wrong. And I do think that in our justice system, we do have to take that into consideration and protect people that may not have the same mental faculties as the average person. However, and I'm asking this genuinely, I'm, I'm not trying to say this question rhetorically. I genuinely want an answer because I'm a little bit unsure on this. Does his mental capacity actually matter? And the reason that I ask that is not because I think it should be a non-factor in, in all cases. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in this one particular case, considering that we know the details, the gruesomeness of the murder, we know that there was premeditation, we know that this person was trying to desecrate the body afterward, trying to, you know, at the very least cover his tracks in some way. This does depict somebody that has a fairly depraved mind. And even people that are mentally handicapped in some way Yes, sometimes they don't have the best moral compass. Yes, sometimes they might have outbursts of anger or something like that that they don't really have full control over and do things that they shouldn't. But I've met quite a few people that are handicapped that are of this ability or even lower sometimes, lower than a, a 64 IQ. It's rare, but it does happen. I, I've met people and, and even know people that I'm close to that have relatives like this. And, and have people like this in my family. And while they may occasionally behave badly or act up or do things that they shouldn't, um, violence is rarely a factor in that. And when it is, it certainly doesn't rise to the level of killing someone. And so what I'm saying here is, yes, his mental capacity is less than that of the average person. I don't think anybody would deny that based on the IQ test. However, even with that taken into consideration, I do think that his actions show that he is, you know, even by the standard that we would set that is lower for somebody that is mentally handicapped, I, I think that it's not unreasonable to expect someone not to brutally murder someone and then try to burn their body. Like, I, I don't think that that's setting the bar too high, even for a mentally handicapped person. And so I'm asking if in this particular instance, if their mental acuity, their mental ability here is actually a factor, if that is something that even if you factor it in, still shouldn't result in the death penalty. And again, I'm not sure that I have a good answer on this one. I'm just asking the question because I do think that it's a good question. And I think that you could make a solid case for that being a non-factor, which of course, it seems as though the state of Alabama has done. Now, the bigger debate that I want to address here is when it comes to the death penalty itself, is the death penalty something that is justified? So I guess the first question to ask is, because this is often brought up when discussing this with Christians, is the death penalty something that is moral or is it something that the Bible would approve of? And for that, I think we have to go to Genesis 9-6, which is very early in the Bible. It takes place directly after the Noahic covenant, so after the flood of Noah, this is part of the speech that God gives to Noah, giving him some rules to live by. God speaking here, whoever sheds human blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made mankind. So, despite this being a short verse, there's a lot to unpack there. Because God not only grants an edict, he also, <coughs> excuse me, he doesn't only grant a rule or an edict here. He also gives an explanation as to why the thing that he is commanding is correct and good. 
which is something that I like about the Bible is that it very often does that. It doesn't just give you a whole bunch of arbitrary rules and tell you why this is bad and this is not. It does that occasionally, especially in the law of Moses, but usually, especially on big moral questions, it gives you an explanation. It gives you a why. And so the rationale here is no person who has been given life by God has the right to take life from another person without a good reason, you know, self-defense, something like that. And that is because they are made in the image of God. And so you're made in the image of God, other people made in the image of God. You don't have the right to take that life from them because that's something, that is a gift that God gave them and you don't have the right to take it from them. That's why I said at the beginning of this, it is the most fundamental of all rights. And it is specifically because we're image bearers. In fact, I've said in debates many times, even though I can give you secular arguments, I can give you rationale without using the Bible, without using moral arguments for things like abortion, things like the death penalty, all of that is predicated on one biblical idea. And it is the idea that human life is intrinsically valuable. Where does that idea come from? It comes from the idea that we are all created by God. And because of that, that grants us an inherent value that you can't get away from. Now, atheists would also agree that at least most of them, I assume, would also agree that human life has some kind of intri uh, intrinsic value, but they don't have any good arguments for why. They can't really explain to you why a human life has value or should be considered inherently valuable without going to something from divine revelation. And so while I think that that's a good starting point, and because we all agree on that, we can build arguments on that basis, I'm just saying that the basis itself is something that originates from monotheistic thought. And so because of that, this is the same rationale that is given. You're not allowed to murder people because that it would be taking a life away that is also an image bearer of God. And you'll notice that it's interesting that when someone has shed that blood, their blood must also be shed. So he's saying that specifically humans, because again, if you look back at it, it says that by man, his blood shall be shed. So this isn't even a situation where you're supposed to just wait for God to sort it out. He says specifically that humans have a direction. They are told specifically and commanded by God. When someone sheds human blood, it is your responsibility to make sure his blood is shed proportionally. That is something that God actually advocates for. He's saying when someone has been proven to not be able to be trusted with their life because they have taken the life of another individual, it is your responsibility to take their life from them. And so we can debate back and forth on the merits of the death penalty. We can debate back and forth on how long a, a space we should have within the judicial system uh, between conviction and the execution to give the courts time to find new evidence, which, which has happened before. We can debate all of those things. But what is absolutely a non-starter is saying, well, the Bible and God would forbid the death penalty. Nope, that's not true. In fact, the Bible advocates for the exact opposite. Now, how we do it, that is another discussion in and of itself. And by the way, being somebody that is very libertarian-minded, I even understand the argument of okay, well, in theory, the, the death penalty should be something that should be implemented. However, I do not trust the government because they don't have a great track record on this. I understand that argument. I'm sympathetic to it, and, and I can see where you're going with that. 
but you cannot make the argument that, well, the Bible very clearly would forbid that. No, I'm, I'm sorry. The Bible actually commands that there be some kind of reconciliation or not reconciliation, that there should be some kind of uh, proportional punishment that is given to somebody that sheds innocent blood. And so that is something that the Bible actually talks about. But you notice there that not only does God give a rationale, but that rationale is that we are all created in his image. And because of that, we are supposed to uphold certain standards. And when somebody has harmed another image bearer, justice must be served in response to that. So put plainly, there really is just no biblical or moral justification for the death penalty to be completely outruled in all circumstances. Um, if you, on this particular case, think that because of his mental capacity or something like that, that he should be spared the death penalty, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that they made the right call here. However, I see your argument. I really do. I see where you're coming from. I don't think that it's in any way irrational to make that case. And so because of that, I, I'm very sympathetic to the, the idea that this one particular case may have been one where the death penalty should not have been evoked, even though I would side on, on the other side of that debate. I'm just saying that, you know, I, I'm not, because here's the thing, ultimately, if we're going to have the death penalty, especially as Christians, we do always have to keep in mind that it should not be something that is done out of vengeance or bloodlust. You know, being whipped up into an angry mob or a frenzy that's an anti-Christian idea, and we don't want mob justice. That, that's not good. That leads to things like lynchings, and, and nobody wants to go back to that. And so because of that, the reason that I'm saying this is I'm not saying that we ought to make snap decisions or that this is something that should be done lightly. Christians, if they're going to support the death penalty, as I do, should do so sober-mindedly and very seriously. This is not something that we should just say, you know, well, the Bible gives permission for it, therefore we ought to do it, and if you think differently, you're an idiot. No, that's, there's legitimate concerns here, is what I'm saying. But this should always be done remembering that this was an edict given by God out of compassion. You might say, well, executing someone is an act of compassion? Yes, because you have to remember that when it comes to justice punishment, at least from the human perspective. It's different from God's perspective because he, he, he deals on a more spiritual level than we do. But strictly from a human physical perspective, punishment is not done for the person to learn their lesson. It's not done to reform them. It is done specifically to remove that person from society and make sure that they are incapable of doing the same thing to someone else. It is a compassion to other people whom they might hurt. And sometimes it can be a compassion to themselves as well. In other words, the person that committed the crime, that sometimes gives that, gives that person, and in fact, there's many stories of this, uh, the ability to redeem themselves and to change their ways and to repent. That happens. And that's one of the reasons that I do think that there should be at least some period of time that is significant between conviction and execution. But I do think that we have to remember also that ultimately when we do this as Christians, we have to come from it from an angle of compassion because ultimately that's what the thing is supposed to be in the first place. It's supposed to be done as a compassion to other people. It's not that you hate the person that committed the crime. It's that you love the other people whom they might hurt and could become their potential future victims. You have to say, nope, 
we, we can't trust that person. That person is clearly a danger to himself and other people. So we have to take that person out, whether that's the death penalty or imprisonment for life, whatever it is. We understand that the punishment in the justice system is supposed to be done in a way not out of vengeance or out of you know wanting to see that person die, but ultimately because you're wanting to do the most good for the people in society around it. So what we're going to do now is we are going to take a quick break and then we are going to go to our interview with Brian Dawson. He is the CEO of 1819 News and that is a new news site that has been launched in the state of Alabama. So very excited to get to talk to him about that. Also, we got uh, a couple interesting segments coming up. We have a breaking the internet about gas prices and the daily dose of stupid, which is going to be about DC comics and their new woke Superman. So we're going to be discussing all of that. Let's go ahead and go to that interview with Brian Dawson right after this break. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. As always, remember to like and subscribe because that helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. And uh, we're going to go ahead and go to a guest. I was actually talking to him just a second ago. I'm very surprised we've never had this particular individual on my show. His name's Brian Dawson, and uh, he just recently launched a brand new news site, 1819 News, a news specifically for the state of Alabama. Welcome on to the program, Brian. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Well, I'm really excited to get to talk to you because you and I have been friends for a long time, but I was really just kind of stunned. We were talking off the air just a few minutes ago. It was like, I can't believe I've never had you on my show. <laughs> so uh, welcome on to the your maiden voyage. Well, thank you. Uh, it's exciting. Well, I wanted to talk, and, and we'll just dive right into this. Uh, 1819 News is a brand new site. It launched, what, two, three days ago, something like that? Yeah, we launched it on Monday. It actually went live at about like 1.15 p.m. Well, on Monday. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What, what was the idea behind 1819 News? Why is it that you felt that this was something that the state of Alabama needed when we already have several news sources? So just kind of give me the, uh, the inspiration for putting this organization together. Sure. Um, and trying to figure out how far back to go into the whole origin story of it. I think uh, the simplest way of describing it is that any business that starts, isn't the impetus behind a business starting is that there's an underserved clientele. Um, there's there's sure. uh, there's a problem uh, that needs solving, and so we believe that uh, the people of Alabama are underserved by their news and media outlets, and so uh, I think that comes in a couple of different forms. Uh, I think the 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 first and most noticeable way that I think that people you know that I talk to have picked up on is um, the uh, AL.com. Um, mm -hmm shaming of your values and so it's just this, this and it's the you know the, the media agent or the media outlet of record in the state the alabama media group that now owns the birmingham news the mobile press register mm -hmm. uh the big paper in huntsville they now own all of that and it's um uh, well i'll get into to that in a second but um you you can see just a steady stream of content coming out from them that is um you know uh, you you know good dirty rednecks clinging you know you bitter clingers clinging your guns and your bibles you know how dare you vote for trump you should be ashamed of yourselves and as you really dig into the alabama media group and their funding they're funded by propublica and propublica is a george soros funded mm -hmm. uh organization and so why on earth would there be an outlet that's just posted up in an, a a a deep red state that just 
slams everyone in that state for what they believe. And if you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, someone's funding that thing to be uh, basically like a, a steady drop to cause like a water dropping uh, of erosion on our values that they just day in, day out, tell us how stupid we are and how we should be ashamed of what we believe in. I think they just came out with an article yesterday or the day before that you know, we're the fourth unhappiest state or the fourth saddest state or something like that. Um, and their their metrics for what they were measuring for why we were the fourth saddest state were ridiculous. But either way, mm. I mean, that just captures sure. exactly what the problem is, is like these people hate Alabama. They hate Alabamians. Um, and that's our news, uh, you know, the news outlet of, of, of record in the state. And so um, that that is one problem. Uh, the other problem is the the media outlets that are supposed to be not that um, are um, they're not doing uh, they're they're not asking tough questions. And so I would say instead of um, digging in and asking tough questions, and and I always say this historically, the the press has always promoted healthy skepticism of government. It's their job is to hold the government and 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 and, and corporations and people with power. Uh, it's supposed to keep them in check, and and it's and it serves the people. And right now they're not doing that. And so uh, I would say that you know rather than you know asking Governor Ivy tough questions, they're trying to cozy up to her to get access. Um, and there's probably a whole lot of other things that are going on too. But um, not to jump into that, it, the simplest way of saying it is um, the people of Alabama are being underserved because the media outlets aren't promoting healthy skepticism of the government. They follow whatever shiny red object the, the the government's communications people put out a press release talking about how great the governor is or when it's not just the governor just whoever and they just follow it and say oh yeah the governor is great or this is that and there's there's no <clears throat> digging in and asking questions again and and because of that um the people of alabama uh, are not being served well and so you can look at the the last legislative session uh and and things like that and um how far do I want to go into that? Yeah, there's well, so much, so much meat on that bone, and we can probably save that for later. But at the end of the day, why why did we start it? There's two problems. Um, one is is the major media outlet is telling us we should be ashamed of what we believe. The other media outlets aren't asking tough questions. We're going to solve both of those problems by um, having real journalists that are doing real uh, reporting uh, and digging and, and finding answers for the people of Alabama, and we're also going to create content that celebrates what's good, true, and beautiful about the state. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with, an, you know, pretty much all of that. And uh, I just kind of want to get inside your head as far as where this question goes. I think there are two different schools of thought here when it comes to new media. There's the one that takes the um, everybody's biased, everyone has bias. And so let's just steer into that skid and just openly admit that, you know, Daily Wire, the Blaze are conservative, and you have uh, Slate and Mother Jones that just openly admit that they're liberal, and, and that that's the better route to go. It sounds like, and I just want to get your reaction to this, because I know you're personally conservative, uh -huh. but are you guys going to take more of the stance of we're going to do more objective journalism and, and try to be an actual journalistic organization instead of giving news from a, a certain bend or a certain ideological stance? Absolutely, and so um there is a thing and i've been in news media for the last seven years and there's a saying that if you're not left you're right 
and and what that means is is if you're not saying the same things in all as all these radical left media outlets and that are shaping the narrative if you're not saying what they're saying you must be alex jones right and so the epic times i think took those shots i think they do a lot of really really good Mm -hmm. um straight reporting and they're considered radically conservative and they're not really that radically conservative they 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 do journalism and so by not being left you're going to be considered right if that makes sense but we have no um, i mean it makes sense when you have such a large majority in an industry that thinks one way of course if you don't do that regardless of whether you have an ideological bend or not you're going to be perceived as an outlier so yeah i think that stands to reason yeah and within our media organization we're going to have multiple departments our news department is dedicated to shooting straight down the middle if um you guys are not familiar with who Ray Mellick is. Ray Mellick was uh, at the Birmingham Post-Herald uh, as a sports journalist, um, one of the best in the business, and and he is a, a true journalist to the core. He went on from the Birmingham Post-Herald to work at the Birmingham News. Uh, when the Birmingham News started to move in the direction that it currently is now, um, he left uh, and went into doing comms work for big corporations and stuff like that. And then he went on to be the district director for Gary Palmer uh, in uh, his congressional district. And so um, we actually went to him and, and shared the idea and said, hey, do you know anybody that you know might want to oversee this? Just thinking that he might, you know, there's no way Ray's going to go and come work for us. I mean, we have a great vision and, and we have great resources, but you know, Ray's older and, and he's established and he's basically riding off into the sunset where he was. And he's like, uh, actually, I think I might be I think I'd be interested in, in, in being that person for you. And so he's our editor-in-chief, and he's making sure that the news is the news. Um, there is no political spinning. The The news comes straight down the middle. If we have a reporter, and, and what, what can happen when you have an editorial board that's strong is you don't have to worry about the political leanings of uh, your reporters. If you have a reporter that's maybe center-left, that's going to be tightened up in the editing process to make sure that there's no po politics showing in the reporting. Uh, if you've got a guy that leans a little bit more right, that's going to be tightened up uh, having an editorial board. Nothing gets posted to our website by reporters. It all has to go through an editor, and those editors um, are being told um, and, and by by Ray uh, and, and, and supported by me that um, the news has to be the news. We can't be um, using adjectives that skew us one way or the other. Now, that being said, our editorial page, our opinions uh, and, and our columns and our features and things like that, um, that's going to be a little bit more center right, and and we because we want it to reflect Alabama, and so our branding statement is honest news, the voice of Alabama values, and so our editorial page is going to reflect what we think Alabama values are: is um, a belief in God, believing the Bible, hard work, perseverance, owning land, family. Um, I mean, all these things that make Alabama what it is, and it goes on competition and all these other things that that reflect who we are. Um, you know, fall kind of on one side of the spectrum, but that doesn't mean we're not going to give voice to someone who disagrees. We actually want to promote healthy conversations on our editorial page. And then we're going to be, we're going to have a full-blown audio video production unit that's dedicated to, to uh, creating content. And that's where we're really going to lean into celebrating what's good about the state rather than all of the, the shaming. We, you know, there's incredible stories out there. There's, um, you know, from our heroes, everyone from, you know, Bear Bryant to Helen Keller, uh, our entrepreneurs, our businesses, um, the things that we have going on in Huntsville that are incredible, that's making international news. We have the Port and Mobile. Birmingham's an absolute economic powerhouse. And you have us in Montgomery, which is the capital. So there's stuff going on all over the place. And, and, and it's really, really good. And it's just those stories aren't being told. So we want to fix that.
Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. And I find myself in a, a weird position, too, as a political commentator who obviously has a bias. I'm very open about that. I appreciate the fact that you guys want to be the the guys that aren't that, that actually do want to just tell the news, tell it straight, just deliver the facts. Of course, you know, I like to think most of my stuff is based on facts as well. But the point is, I actually do have an opinion. I, I want to espouse that. And, and the fact that you are going to offer sort of both of that, you're going to have the hard journalism and draw a very distinct line between that and the opinion stuff. Because, you know, I'm, I'm reading... I read a lot of media specifically out of the state of Alabama all the time. And to, to their credit, occasionally they will, you know, post something that's just openly overtly political and say that this is an opinion column, but they've blurred the line between journalism and opinion to where you really like whether the label's on it or not, you know, that you're getting something directly from the left with a lot of our, uh, uh, with a lot of our media. And then the other one kind of has the same problem that you were just talking about. If the goal of an interview is to get to a second interview, then that interview is not going to be any good. And, and I'm, you know, I, I would hate the fact that I, I have a hard time getting KIV on the show, but I, you know, I think part of that is because she knows it would be a tough interview. Um, and so, I, you know, I appreciate the, uh, the sort of direction that you're taking from that. Um, but if you're going to be doing the audio and video, I guess that's what I really want to latch on to uh, just because it's, it's something that interests me as well. Um, are you guys going to be doing content kind of like this, like a talk show with interviews and that kind of thing? Are you guys going to be leaning more towards like creative media, you know, short films, that sort of thing? Yeah. So I would say, you know, eventually both. And so eventually we'll have an app and we'll be doing kind of the style of show that you're talking about or maybe something like you would see on blaze tv with steve dace and so they're in a, an audio production studio that has a fancy background and so it looks like a radio show on tv right and so we'll, we'll right. eventually get into those things but um the the crux of our audio video production is going to be telling stories and so uh caleb you know my background working for lee habib and right. our american stories uh, it's the fastest growing radio show in the country and it's a storytelling radio show and they 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 celebrate the things that are beautiful about our country uh, our country's under attack our country's you know history and reputation we've we've allowed the left to tell our story and so um there's a great line let's see if i don't butcher it uh, that he wrote in the federalist back in 2018 it says if we continue to let the left tell the story of america to americans that's not just gross negligence it's cultural suicide and so what's meant by that is if we continue to let the left tell our story, mm -hmm. we can't be surprised when it's not the right, when it's not true and it's not the right story. Well, and go ahead. No, I was going to say, we have to keep in mind, even though I love this medium, I love talk radio. I think I have a fantastic audience. And I mean, you, you know, a lot of the people in my audience as well, uh, great people, but you know, we have to be realistic about the fact that the people that are involved enough to take time to listen to an overtly political podcast or radio show or TV show like we're, we're doing now, that's like maybe 5% of the state and that's being generous. Yeah. And so if we actually do want to make a difference, we have to be able to, you know, venture into a venue that appeals to a broader audience, I guess uh, is the yeah. best way to say it. Absolutely. And, and, um, that, and that, that's it. And, and the left has Hollywood and NPR. And so, you know, they have the, and, mm -hmm. and they're not preaching to the choir. I think they have Rachel Maddow as like their only, you know, political, you know, like, so we, we had Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Michael Savage. I mean, you just go on down the line. Sure. Um, and, and all we do with that medium, 
I always joke and say it's angry conservatives talking to other angry conservatives about how angry and conservative they are. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's what There's we do. There's some truth to that. Yeah, and that's what we do with this medium. And it's literally all we do is we don't preach to the choir. We yell at them. Um, we yell at the choir. And so um, why is it that we don't spend more time just trying to create content that celebrates what's good rather than us constantly talking about what's bad about the left? Why don't we tell them what's good about not just not, not what's good about the right? Why don't we tell them what's good about their country? Mm-hmm. Why don't we tell them what's good about their state? Um, and, and leave all the left, right, political, you know, um, all those issues and just, um, you know, and, and think about like the, Im- the, the imitative power of storytelling too. And you think sure. about media and story as cult- cultural architecture and you, and you watch Braveheart and you hear that speech and you're just moved, you know, by that speech and you see that he died uh, in order to, to, to give freedom to his people. And that makes you want to you know, have those same attributes and those same um, things and, and it's uh, courage and leadership and all these things. And so you want to imitate that. I think another uh, a good story that talks about the imitative power. Um, have you seen the movie The Blind Side? Uh, yeah, I have yeah. seen it. And you know what's funny good. is <laughs> I've never asked anyone if they saw The Blind Side. And they're like, no, that's uh, I've never <laughs> seen it. So, of course, everyone's seen The Blind Side. Well, you so, do live in a football state, so that probably is, is, is a true. contributing this factor. This is true. And we played Ole Miss, so. Um, but you know, the blind side is, it's a, it's a story. It was originally written in a book and then it was turned into a movie about, um, a family who, uh, adopts, um, a a poor black kid and gives him love and direction and and helps him along his way. And he ends up going to Ole Miss to play football. He's drafted, I think in 2009, um, to, to go and and play for uh, the Ravens. I think he even won a Super Bowl. He was a first round draft pick. So on and on and on. It's just this incredible beautiful story and someone I know that's close to the Tui family who's the ones that adopted Michael Orr mm-hmm. um, said that uh, Leanne Tui sent out a Christmas card to the people that helped in the project and said that they've had thousands of people um, write her an email or a letter or something saying hey because we watched this movie or because we read this book we decided to adopt and to me that's that imitative power of storytelling when you tell stories about things that are good people will imitate those things that are good and so we want to paint a picture of the good life and and do that in an excellent way and we think that that will help uh, move the culture in a healthy uh, direction well i just think it's common sense you know that i'm also a minister as well and i mean how did god choose to reveal himself to us through narrative like i mean that's just are there laws in the bible sure that, that just plain spell out exactly what you should do and what you shouldn't do but the revelation itself came through narrative and yeah. uh, Jordan Peterson actually talks about that quite a bit about how important it is that, that people understand their world through drama and acting out and narrative. And that's how we really develop a sense of morality. And so, no, I, I think exactly what you're talking about is, is something that would be extremely helpful uh, in the state of Alabama and nationally. Um, in Alabama though, I, I think that, Sometimes we get lulled into a, a false sense of, of safety and security because you talk to the average Alabamian and there's just a sense of all the, the crazy, especially socially liberal things that are going on in other states. Well, that could never happen here because we, we live in Alabama. And I, I think that and I would hope that an honest look, which is what you guys seem to want to be uh, wanting to present to them just an honest look at the status of things would reveal very quickly First of all, Alabama is not nearly as conservative as they think they are. It might be socially conservative in a lot of ways, but our policies don't often reflect that. Uh, and more, moreover, um, 
you know, with the way that things are going on in the federal government, there's a whole lot of people that are trying to impose things regardless of, of what the state is. And there's a lot of people in the state that because there's a price tag attached to it are more than willing to accept if it means that they bring home some bacon for the state of Alabama. And so um, I think, you know, how do you combat that, that sense of security that a lot of Alabamians have? Oh, we're in a conservative state. It'll all be fine. We don't have to worry about that kind of thing. There's really no need for us to be vigilant on that. Yeah, so I think I think the problem is is the 24-hour national news cycle, and so everyone thinks that, and where that "oh, we're not California" attitude comes from is because we were steadily watching Fox News and we're locked in. And I mean, you walk into any Republican's house for the most part, and I wouldn't even say Republican. Majority of Alabamians that I know, when I walk in their house, Fox News is playing in the background. They might not even be actively watching it; it's just on. You can drive down the road and look into people's houses, and you see Sean Hannity <laughs> talking. Right? It's just. It's what it is. And so we're pulled into this national news cycle. And keep in mind, a 24-hour news cycle takes a lot to fill. And so all oh, yeah. of a sudden things that aren't even news start becoming news and things like that. And so we get hooked into it. And we get hooked into it intentionally because they want ratings. And we get sucked into this national drama. And we forget that we have terrible things going on in our state at the legislative level in the, you know, um, and in the policy-making uh, level. And so they're pulled into that national thing and they think, you know, on the national stage, people in Alabama are like, okay, well, Democrats are the problem. Um, and so they check up for like the split second that they check up to, to take their eyes off of national news and politics. And they look at Alabama and it's Republicans all the way on down the line. And they're like, all right, we're good to go. Democrats mm -hmm. are the problem. Let's go to this. And they don't realize that in, in you know, in the state of Alabama, the, all the problems that are being caused right now are be we have a Republican supermajority. And, 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 and we're getting legislation that would make a New York Democrat blush, right? It's crazy. And so, um, and no one's paying attention. So I think the way that we solve that problem to kind of get that uh, apathetic view towards, you know, oh, we'll never be that, um, is that you get, you, you show the people of Alabama how they're being, uh, played maybe that's the right word how they're 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 not being served um, by the, the the people that they're electing to send to Montgomery to represent Absolutely. them um, and you do it in such a way to where they get engaged and I think the cultural climate right now uh, it, it's it's perfect timing uh, right now that people have the kind of like a sleeping giant has been awakened between COVID and all the vaccine stuff and the election stuff and everything else people are really waking up and saying hey we we can't sit on the sidelines anymore. We're going to get, we need to get involved. And so we want to provide them with the information they need so that they can engage in their civic duties. Well, you know, it's an interesting problem because especially people that are small government minded like you and me and, um, you know, the way the founders, I believe, intended it was for the average citizen to not really need to pay attention to stuff like this. I mean, our whole system is geared towards the average person not really having to worry about politics all that often. And yet it was those same founders that believed that once the public became ill-informed that you would see the end of the republic. And so it's an interesting sort of dichotomy is that uh, our goal is really to get to a point to where the average person doesn't really need to think about politics on a daily basis or, or, or really not, you know, at all until an election. But at the same time, we do want to make people aware of things because uh, that is how our system was originally designed, but it's not functioning the way it was originally designed for sure. Yeah, I think um, too, and I think there's a difference between being aware and being an activist. And it was actually your dad that brought this to my attention. We were at a, one of Becky's um, things at Bethel for Eagle Forum. 
And I was talking to him. He says, look, you know, um, I, I work, you know, I work hard and I don't have time to be a political activist to pay attention to all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I need someone to just tell me what's going on in a quick way. And interestingly enough, it was him having that conversation with me that started a, a feature we have called The Daily Detail. Um, that's going to be a daily seven to 12 minutes can be delivered as a podcast. It's not really a traditional podcast, but that'll be how we deliver it. Sure. And it's just a daily seven to 12 minute newscast. that tells you everything that you need to know that's going on in Alabama. And then it'll segue to everything that's going on nationally. That's going to affect you as an Alabamian. So you, if you can take 10 minutes every day to listen to that on your, on your way to work, you will stay informed. And so we want people to be aware the people that are able to get active, we need them to get active, but we need everyone to be aware of what's going on. And that's the whole thing. It's like, if people, the people of Alabama, if they knew what was going on, they would do the right thing. And it's, they don't know, I think is the problem. And so being able to get them to pay attention and once they see what's going on, I think that they'll, they'll respond accordingly. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Alabama, we are naturally like inherently conservative on the, the citizen level. And I think that if they just had any awareness of what was going on, uh, you would see a lot of changes probably pretty quickly. Uh, a great example of this is I um, had a conversation with somebody that's not particularly politically savvy, and, and that's part of the reason that I was interested in, in having this conversation. Uh, and they were talking about Governor Ivey, for example, and saying, well, I, I just appreciate how conservative Governor Ivey is. And, and I'm not trying to pick on Governor Ivey. I'm just saying it's like... I, as I've always said, because Governor Ivy's definitely not the worst governor in the country. You know, she she's not Gavin Newsom. I'm not trying to make the case that she is. But I said, in the last primary, you voted for her. Yeah. I said, well, you know that she was the least conservative of all of the candidates that were running. And they said, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, she's never met a tax she didn't like. She's always in favor of new spending measures and bills. And uh, yes, she signed, for example, the, uh, the abortion ban, but has done absolutely nothing to enforce it. So that has been entirely symbolic from the get-go. Uh, and, you know, talked about the new gas tax, the way that she handled the thing in Mobile with the bridge, uh, talked about the Amazon tax, the retail tax. I mean, like, but just these people have no idea, absolutely no idea. none that that ever happens. Uh, all they know is that she says some nasty things about Joe Biden every once in a while, and then they don't see her again for two months, and they think, oh, she must be pretty conservative. Yeah. And I'm not – I'm just using her as an example because there's a lot of state legislators that are in exactly the same boat. Yeah, and I, I think, too, um, the standard is different for her because she's the governor of Alabama, right? Mm -hmm. she's, not, she's not the governor of Vermont. She's not the governor of Delaware. Or the governor of Delaware. She's not – you know, or even some other kind of milquetoast, squishy state. Like, we are – the can the most conservative state culturally in the nation like i Absolutely. definitely put us up against texas we are the most conservative and so you 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 in you see christy gnome you see and again people have their differences about her but if you really just boil it down and look at what she's done it's really incredible uh you see gavin or not gavin oh man uh ron DeSantis, yeah um and what he's doing and you're like wow that's what leadership looks like look at what they're doing and, he's and that doing dude's that in, in a florida. swing state yeah he, he's doing that in florida and so one of the things that's crazy is one of the things I have learned working in the media space is that uh, in the politics space is, and, it's, and it doesn't apply here, and it's so weird, is that politics is downstream from culture, right? It's the whole Breitbart thing. Politics right, is downstream Breitbart. from culture. Nothing happens in politics or public policy until it first takes place in the culture. No matter what people think about it, Obergefell doesn't happen without will and grace. 
right? right? It doesn't. And so they use media to all of a sudden take something that's taboo and then make it normal. And then all of a sudden it finds its way into legislation and the entire culture has changed. And that's how it usually goes. Well, here in Alabama, it's not. We have an incredible culture mm-hmm. and our legislation stinks and it does not reflect <laughs> it. And it's, it's so it's like, um, it is, it's absolutely bizarre. And what that means is we just have uh, a disengaged populace and that's the way they want it. They want to lull us and rock us to sleep about state-level issues and say, look at California, look at Gavin Newsom, look at that crazy lady in Michigan, look at this, look at that, look everywhere but Montgomery. Well, and I think that really is, they want it to be the standard. Yeah, I mean, that's what they're pushing for, because as long as their standard is, well, at least we're not those guys, and unfortunately, there's a lot of Alabama citizens that are perfectly content with that. Yeah. Uh, just. Well, you know, we're not we're not California, you know, even a less blue state. We're not, you know, like you were talking about some of the New England states, your Delawares, your Maines, that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, it would be kind of like if you joined a church and said, well, at least we're not Satan worshipers. Well, that's not a good reason to join a church. Yeah, we should be the standard bearers of of conservatism and what a super Republican supermajority you know, ran state, we should be the standard bearer. People should be looking at Alabama and be like, man, if we could get to where Alabama is, we'd be doing something. Instead, we're dragging behind. And another thing I think too, and well, I don't even know if I want to get all the way into that, but um, the folks at the Alabama Policy Institute put together a study, and I wish I could cite it off the top of my head or whatever, and, sure. and if I need to, I can go find it. But it was basically based off of the natural resources that this state has, mm-hmm. where should we be competing at in these different areas? And so with the timber industry that we have, with the port mobile, with um, the aeronautical stuff we going on in Huntsville, Birmingham's an absolute economic powerhouse. We have all this stuff. They said that if, if, if government would just get out of the way and there wasn't all these res- restrictive regulations and, you know, monopolies and, and all this, like all the stuff that goes on in Alabama and corruption and everything else, if that was moved out of the way, we would be competing at like 25th or 26th in every category. Instead, we're battling for 49th and 50th. And that's because of, I, I would argue, the style of government that we have. Um, so, yeah. Well, you, you compare us to other states that are just killing it in, uh, economically. And, you know, in some pockets of Alabama, economically, we're doing very well. Huntsville is a great example of that. Uh, but if you look at it overall, you look at what the difference is between us and, for example, Texas and Florida. What is one big, big thing that we have that they don't? Income tax. How does our state continue to have an income tax? Or And a grocery tax. I was going to say, or we need to get rid of some sales tax because what we're doing now is just taxing the same income twice. And, and, and again, not to, to, to keep plugging that, but Justin Bogey at the Policy Institute just came out with a, um, a huge report on basically the, the budget and, and the money and the flow of government. Alabama has never had a larger budget surplus than they did last year. They have more money than they've ever had in the history of the state. And they didn't have a sales tax holiday. They didn't eliminate the grocery tax. They didn't, you know, lower or reduce or get rid of the the state income tax. They didn't do anything with it. Like, and then instead they, they want more, more, more gas tax, more, more, more. Right. So, um, it's crazy. Well, you know, we were actually very fortunate in a lot of ways when it came to the COVID thing, because if you look at our economic numbers compared to most states, and I'm, I'm talking about some of the very large states, we actually had significantly less impact from the pandemic than most states. And I think that is because culturally, regardless of what was mandated from the top or what the, the law was, I use that, you know, 
sparingly because a mandate is not a law and you actually don't have to adhere to it regardless of what people tell you to. Uh, but, you know, those things being in place, most people just kind of ignored it. And that's kind of reflective of the thing that we're just talking about right there. It makes no sense that our laws do not reflect the the will of our people. Um, the, the people of Alabama and the way that their legislatures and, and their elected officials think is just very much out of step with one another. And it's just strange that we have that problem. Um, but, you know, what do you think as far as with, uh, with 1819 News, um, what do you think that shift in media w will do for that when it comes to just getting, you know, I'm, I'm talking more on the news level, not necessarily the opinion, which is what I do. Um, what, what do you think that that does? Uh, do you think that that will actually make an alteration in voting practices or do you think it's going to be more of the same? I think, um, again, and, and so in our mission statement that we've come out with, we're trying to ignite a civic and cultural revival in the state of Alabama. And you can't do that if you don't have the truth. And so the news, you know, that we have the superior product, we have the truth. Our news is going to be honest. We're going to tell people what's going on. Um, and then obviously with our opinion stuff and the, the, the other content that we're going to be creating, it's going to be encouraging people to get involved and to teach them how things work in at the you know um, at the state level as far as politics who their senator is who their congressman is how to get in touch with them um you know all of those type of things but it just at the pure news level um i think giving the people of alabama the information that they need and 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 ray and i'm probably going to butcher his saying um but it's you know his philosophy is is shine the light and then let people figure out where they want to go and so by that's us, what journalism is supposed to be yes. like you just hear the facts you make your own decisions yeah and i really do if, if people understood how the decisions that were being made in montgomery affected their pocketbook affected their families mm -hmm. and they really just saw it in one big clear picture you know oh my gosh you know and, and one of the ways i equated it is they're sitting there kind of i wouldn't say i don't know happy or you know not not knowing what's going on and so they're just kind of in this this lulled state and I and like imagine if you had a house and a, and a piece of property and you were downriver from someone uh, that had a house and property upriver mm -hmm. and they were basically cutting off the water and you didn't you know doing something that was affecting your land but you didn't know about it and then all of a sudden someone came and told you and said hey you know bub up the way is doing such and such to your water and you're downstream from him you know you didn't know anything about it and you you couldn't have cared less 20 minutes ago but now all of a sudden that you know that this is happening you're fired up and you're mad because you see what someone some someone is doing something that affects you adversely and you didn't know about it and then you were made aware and so we want to make the people of alabama aware of the things that are going on in the state well um, you, you know it's an interesting combination that you've been talking about and it's one that i try to walk myself even though i'm i'm not a hard news guy uh it seems it's so interesting to me that uh you know, you take the stance of there are some real problems here. Uh, there are real issues that really do affect families and people in the state of Alabama that they need to know about, that they need to be aware of. And if they did, they would make some changes. However, we still come at it from the perspective of Alabama is a great place to live. We don't think that the people here are broken or that the state is like wildly out of step with where it should be. Um, and so it's an interesting dichotomy that it, it, 
you know, I kind of find myself a little bit torn because I hold both of those beliefs as well. I think Alabama is the the best state in the country. I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And at the same time, I'm very much aware of and, and spend a, a significant amount of my time a day uh, pointing out that there are problems here and things that need to be resolved. And so uh, how do you walk that line with a news organization like this? I don't, I don't even, I wouldn't even look at it as, as a line. I think, um, you know, weeds, if you have a garden that produces fruit and it's good and you love your garden, that doesn't mean you don't have to pull weeds, right? And yeah, so, good point. Um, I think that's all it is. And I think I think the people of Alabama have been lulled into a, a slumber to where that they haven't been pulling weeds that they needed to. Uh, and I think that that slumber was intentional. Um, and, you know, the people that are in Montgomery right now don't want the people of Alabama to know what's going on. Uh, and they use the national, you know, news cycle as a way to distract. And so sure. I think once people, again, I, and I've said this, you know, three different ways, but it really is. I think once people are aware of what's going on, um, especially in the current climate right now. I mean, look at what's going on and um, some of these concerned doctors things. I don't know if you went to the Birmingham one or if you're going to go to the one that's going to be here in Montgomery. I was actually out of the country for that one, even though I was invited. But uh, yeah. I did have Dr. McWhortley on my show to talk about it. Uh, Ryan, uh, Dr. McWhorter. Yeah, he's, yeah. gosh, he's fantastic. And so, um, you know, I think the, the, the one that they had in Birmingham, they sold 500 tickets and over 1,000 people showed up. It was standing room only. It's absolutely incredible. So that's, that shows you kind of what the climate is. And, and again, going into everything with COVID shutdowns and, you know, was the election stolen and all this other stuff, people just know that something's wrong and it's reached a critical mass, if you will. It's reached a breaking point. And, and that mixed with uh, the timing of us coming in here and being able to shine a light on the corruption, mm -hmm. I think people are just dying to get involved and to be able to fix what's going on because they do love their state and, and, and they do know that it's the best place to live in the country. Well, and I think this is sort of the analogy that I gave. I like your analogy of the garden with the weeds. Um, you know, just because you're, this is the analogy I've used more often. Just because you're in love with someone, like if you're in a relationship, doesn't mean that there aren't flaws that need to be corrected. Like that, yeah, there's not a perfect human being, and so you're going to have those flaws. I think that, you know, it's the same kind of thing. We, we can acknowledge that there is good there uh, and also acknowledge that there are real problems that need to be corrected. And it's interesting, too, that it's the very same people that you were talking about kind of at the beginning of this that have the very um, pessimistic view of Alabama, not just of our politics, but of our people and, and culturally. Uh, it's those same people that, uh, you know, take the stance that, at least from a political perspective, uh, you know, they'll come after a politician here and there, but by and large, you notice that they don't complain much about the policies that actually wind up getting passed, and that's because a lot of the stuff they want actually winds up getting passed. Yeah. Big, big unchecked government is bad on both sides. And mm -hmm. so whether you're in Chicago and it's a whole bunch of, or Baltimore and, and you have a whole bunch of Democrats that are um, unchecked, it's corruption because it's human nature is what we're up against. And, and, and you know, the, the powers of darkness or, you know, that that's sin. Like that's what we're ultimately up against. And so, you know, that doesn't mean that everyone, you know, every legislature and senator in, 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 in the state is a bad person. But what it does mean is when you have unchecked power, um, that's not good. It doesn't matter if they're Republicans or they're Democrats. And so Absolutely not. We, don't, I mean, we, don't, we don't have a Democrat Party holding the Republican Party accountable in the state of Alabama. We don't have a media holding. Not, well, we do now. But we, we didn't um, and haven't had a media outlet to hold them accountable. So they've been completely unchecked. 
doing whatever they want, putting out press releases saying they're doing stuff over here, and it just, yeah, anyway, I could go on and on for hours. So. Well, we could, but, you know, I, I do think we need to start bringing this blunt down, but I think what you're talking about is really at the core of the problem is we have to realize at a certain point that we are fighting not just a, a rival political ideology, we're fighting a completely different worldview. I mean, people that view the world differently because what, what you just talked about is the idea that even good people, people that you like, people that you uh, may have even voted for and wanted to be in office, they can't be trusted with unlimited power no matter how much you like them. Yeah. And there's you know another group of people over on the left that seem to think that uh, it was bizarre to me, for example, that they thought that, you know, I'll just use this as one example, uh, that Trump was literally Adolf Hitler and hated, um, you know, everybody that wasn't a white heterosexual male. Um, and yet they were very upset when he didn't take more power and do more things when it came to COVID. It was bizarre, but I think it's because they really do see, and I think, frankly, they see it correctly, that any increase in centralized government power is a win for them. Yeah. Because they can use it as a weapon next time when their guy's in office. And so it, it really is a different view of like, no, 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 it's not that I want my guy to be empowered to do anything bad to you. I just don't want anybody to have that level of power. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, having that kind of power is exactly how corruption goes, which unfortunately the state of Alabama is no stranger to. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll have plenty of time to cover that in the future. So. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to it, uh, and that is 1819 News. How can people get access to it? Yeah, no, and please do, and help us get the word out, because at the Absolutely. end of the day, there is a lot of powerful people that don't want to see this thing succeed. Um, you know, fortunately, by the grace of God, um, we we are well-staffed, well-backed. Um, you know, we have great resources, but it's still going to be an uphill battle. Uh, social media is no friend of truth, right? And so we, we need, just like how you opened your thing, like, hey, social media overlords, right? <laughs> So, by the um, way, I heard you already got shadow banned. You've been on run for like right 10 away. seconds and you got shadow banned. As much as I would like to say Zuckerberg is, you know, sitting in his castle thinking like, ah, there's a media outlet in Alabama and I'm going to <laughs> shut it down. I think it's more of an internal thing uh, as far as it being a new website. And, and so there was like a thing that popped up and said, this isn't a trusted website yet because it literally just launched. Right. And so right. It's, I don't know what the process is, but, but whatever. But yeah, no, I mean. Literally, so on my page, I can post uh, on my personal Facebook page, I can post a picture of a cat and I'll get 100 likes within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I posted um, my first column with a picture of me in a suit announcing to all my friends on Facebook that I'm starting this media outlet or whatever. And it ended up with like eight likes. And I'm like, hmm. And so I took another picture, that exact same picture that was on the column, put it on there and wrote with no links, with no anything, and just said, hey, you know, I'm starting basically very similar text, and then and, and then pressed it and ended up with over 100 likes. Right? No, I, I, I experience the same thing all the time. Facebook, YouTube's the worst about it, but yeah. Facebook, I, I did a segment a couple of years ago. Um, it was during my Christmas special. I was like, I, I did it live on air. I was like, let's see how long it takes me to find one of my videos. <laughs> you know, I was yeah. like... I typed in tactics, Caleb Cockwood, News Radio 1440, and I was uh, result number 89. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's the shadow crazy. banning is real. Yes. Yeah, no, it is. But to get back to how to find us, so you, um, 
the best way is to go to 1819news.com mm-hmm. and sign up for our daily newsletter. And so there's going to be a bunch of things when it comes up, like what's your address, what's your phone number. If you want to give us that, great. And, and if you put your address in there, we'll, we'll send you uh, the quarterly magazine that we send out uh, every three months. Um, but the only required fields uh, when you sign up are uh, name, email address, and then there's a little drop-down menu that says pick the market that you're closest to. And so that way we're not showing you, you know, a car dealership in Huntsville when you're in Mobile, right? And so mm-hmm. it just helps us uh, figure out how, you know, what to show who and, and and if there's, you know, more pertinent content to your market as we get more advanced, those type of things. So, sure, help out the advertisers. Yeah, and so it's um, – it's it's your name, it's your email address, and then what market you're closest to is the only information we need. So, to 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 us, that's the most primary way for us to make sure that we're going to be able to communicate with you as the social media overlords crack down on things. Um, right. But also Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. Go there, follow it, like it, share it, comment, all that stuff, um, and and get the word out. Tell everybody, you know, um, there, there's there's a new sheriff in town. And are you guys also on Parlor and Rumble? Not yet. Um, and so it'll be Parlor, it'll be Rumble, it'll be Gab. Is that right, Gab? Yeah, Gab's thinking, one of them. They're sort Trump's of like the more them. conservative Facebook. So Yeah, yeah. And so we're um, you know, we're in the process of figuring out um, you know, best strategies for all that stuff. Um, you know, so we're on the, the, the three primary uh, and moving forward from there. And so uh, but yeah, so for right now. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, like us, follow us, share us, comment, uh, and help us out there. And then go to 1819news.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right. Sounds good. And I'll definitely be consuming some of your content. You'll probably uh, have a few links that wind up in my sources underneath my videos as well. So uh, definitely a resource I intend to use. And uh, real quick before we go, I want to say I know some of the people down at uh, API. Uh, really good people. Some people that you've seen on the show, Matt Clark is one of them. Uh, he's been here several times. I know Matt Murphy, who I used to work with because he was uh, our Birmingham affiliate in Cumulus. And so, uh, you know, you guys seem to have a really good team. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with it. And best of luck. Thank you. All right. Uh, and that is Brian Dawson. He is the CEO of 1819 News. Thank you so much for being with us. And we will be back in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. <laughs> And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, uh, we're going to go to DC Comics. And you guys know what a huge fan I am of DC Comics, but, you know, dumb is dumb. And I got to call them out when they do something stupid. And unfortunately, this particular topic, DC has been in a, a weird mode lately. They've been trying to go super woke with a lot of things. But unfortunately, they're attacking and, and going after, and I think in, in large part ruining, the character that I care about the most at DC Comics, and that, of course, is Superman. If you've been a fan of mine for any length of time, you know I'm a huge Superman fan. If you've ever come to my apartment, if you go into my house, first thing you're going to see is a very large, life-size, hand-stitched Superman cape that I did myself. 
I actually made it and wore it as a Halloween costume years ago. Uh, I've been Superman for Halloween. I have Superman memorabilia all over the place. I collect Superman comics. There's a Superman graphic novel, uh, several graphic novels on my bookshelf. I'm actually currently reading Superman Unchained again. And so you will be hard pressed to find a person that is a bigger Superman fan than I am. And so I'm just saying that so you have a, a basis to sort of launch into this segment. Warner Brothers is making a new Superman movie, and I believe J.J. Abrams is the one in charge of the project he is going to be directing. You may remember that he was in charge of two of the three new Star Wars movies and was also involved in Star Trek. And so uh, a really good director, somebody whose work, as a general rule, I actually really like. And so this is nothing against J.J. Abrams. But they are going to be making a black Superman movie. And in case you're wondering, are they just going to cast Clark Kent as a black man? No, that's, that's not what's going on here. This is actually uh, the, a different Superman from a different alternate version of reality where Superman happens to be a black person. And he's actually one of the descendants of the House of Zod as opposed to the descendants of the House of El. For those of you who are not well-versed in Superman lore, that probably went way over your head, and I'm sorry for that. But my point is, it's a different character from a different alternate version of reality. But here's my rule on Superman. I don't acknowledge anybody as Superman other than Clark Kent, otherwise known as Kal-El. Now, there are other superheroes that I don't necessarily hold this rule on, but it's because Superman is like... Superman is who the guy is. It's so intertwined with his identity that it doesn't make sense for anybody else to wear the suit and wear the S-Shield and call themselves Superman. I don't buy into that for anybody. Even a character that I really like, Connell, uh, Connor Kent, who is Superboy. He's actually a clone of Superman and Lex Luthor. I don't like when... In, in the arcs where he becomes Superman, I just, I don't buy into it. He, he's great as Superboy, and I like that character. I just don't think that he should be referred to as Superman. There is one Superman that's part of his identity. And by the way, there are other characters that I'm like this with too. I think that Wonder Woman, you can't really have a different Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is who she is. Diana Prince is Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is Diana Prince. The two are inseparable. You can't pass that mantle down to somebody. Same thing with Spider-Man. The thing that was so unique about Spider-Man's comic is that really it was the first superhero that I can think of where it was a story about a, a kid named Peter Parker who also happened to be a superhero. Every other superhero story, it's about the person, including Superman, by the way. Uh, you know, they their true identity is their superhero, and then their alter ego is just kind of a gimmick to make the story more interesting, but it's not really who they are. Superman flipped that on its head. Superman, or Spider-Man. Spider-Man flipped that on its head. And so because Peter Parker's identity is so tied into the Superman mask and the, the, the Superman identity, I don't think that you can separate the two. Thor is a great example of that. I mean, you can't have someone else be Thor. He is Thor. It's his name. It's too tied into his identity for there to be another Thor. There could be other characters with similar powers, but there can't really be another Thor. And there's other comic book characters that I don't mind them passing the mantle down. I actually really like some of the stories where Dick Grayson becomes the new Batman. I My favorite Green Lantern is actually not the original Lantern or the Silver Age Lantern, Hal Jordan, which is the one most people are familiar with. 
My favorite Green Lantern is John Stewart. I think he's by far the coolest one. Hal Jordan's frankly kind of boring. I don't really like him all that much. Uh, but by the way, Hal Jordan, if you don't know, if you don't know your comics, Hal Jordan, white guy. John Stewart, black guy. So this isn't a racial thing. My favorite Green Lantern is the black Green Lantern. And I don't have a problem with that. I just think he's the coolest one and he's the most interesting one to read. So this isn't an issue of like, well, they they took a white character, Superman, and they they turned him into a black person, and I don't like that. No, that's not the thing. Uh, Connor Kent, I don't like it when he's Superman either, and he's he's white. In fact, looks exactly like Superman. And so that's not the issue. My problem is I don't accept anybody, including the two different versions of Superman we're going to be talking about today, as Superman. I know that's a personal preference. It's just the way that I feel about it. And so take that as you can. But we're going to get into some actual facts here um, and, and actually dig into the story. Uh, with the black version of Superman, it's fine if they want to make it, but it does feel like they're taking an otherwise very unpopular character. He He's not in the comics much. He doesn't have a very long run of his his comic book version. It really does feel like they're making the movie just so they can be woke. That really does feel like what's going on here. And I know that it's an alternate version, and it's not Clark Kent, and I, I, I understand all of that better than the average person. And if they want to make the movie, fine. Uh, I might even go see it. I don't know. But it's, it's very obvious that the reason that they're doing it is not because they think that the, the, the character is super popular or that he's going to make a lot of money. It's very clearly obvious the reason they are making this movie is to check off another woke protocol that's all that's going on here and especially with marvel now launching a trans character in eternals which frankly i don't really care much for the eternals i don't even care for them in the comic books and so i'm probably not going to see that one anyway um they're trying to outwoke their competition at this point and it's just stupid it's very obviously just the i mean it was that way in the comics when, when they introduced this character in the comics it was just a dumb publicity stunt they're doing the same thing with the movie and so it doesn't make a lot of sense. But recently, DC actually launched a new series called Superman, Son of Kal-El. Now, this is also, also an alternate version of Superman. He is Superman's son by him and Lois Lane. Now, this is a massive problem for the comic book continuity, primarily because Superman and Lois Lane cannot have kids. That's the way it's always been in DC Comics. He's a Kryptonian. She's a human. Kryptonian and human DNA are not similar enough to be able to produce an, an offspring naturally. There has to be, you know, some gene splicing and that kind of thing. And so it's a bizarre take on the character to even have a son of Superman, since the only kid Superman has had in the past are with other non-humans, like he has a son with Wonder Woman in the Kingdom Come series. That's a good example of it. But traditionally, the, the stance and the way that it works has always been understood that he and Lois Lane can't actually have kids despite being married, specifically because she is human and he's not. But anyway, that aside, for the time being, they launched this new series and the new Superman is gay. That's what they revealed a couple of weeks ago where they had him, uh, they, they basically had a love interest for him that is a reporter for the Daily Planet, really thinking outside the box there, guys, uh, really, really paving some new ground. Uh, <laughs> they couldn't have come up with a different occupation for the, the love interest of new Superman. 
But anyway, so they've done this, and they actually just a few weeks ago did exactly the same thing. They retconned a character into being gay. That uh, th This character is a new character, but they retconned Tim Drake, who has been one of the Robins. He's actually the third Robin from, I don't know, maybe the 70s, I think. Been around for a long time, 70s or 80s at least. And so they retconned a classic character and uh, said that he was gay. And just like I said about that one, all this is is a dumb publicity stunt. All they're trying to do is check off the woke, you know, woke bingo, I guess it is, to make sure that they're fitting in and, and have popular characters that are now identified as being part of this. And I really loved how in the comment section there were so many people who were like, well, it's fine. To, it, it's great to finally get some recognition in comic books for the LGBTQ community because we're so under, uh, underrepresented. I'm like, yeah. Anyone that could say that is revealing that they have no idea about anything when it comes to comic books. Because if anything, gay people are wildly overrepresented <laughs> in comic books. They make up like 2% of the population. And you can't find a comic book series nowadays that hasn't have, doesn't have at least one, if not multiple, gay or bi or trans characters in it. And so it's part of the reason that I haven't really bought many comic books that were written after 2010 because they just became liberal propaganda pieces and they're not even about the story anymore, which we'll get to here in a second. But it's, it's just obvious that what's going on here is these things are not written for the fans anymore. Let me give you an example here. We all know that when it comes to movies, there is a certain class of movie that is made specifically to make money. Your Star Wars, your Marvel movies, your Indiana Joneses, you know, your big blockbuster type movies. There's movies that are made for the audiences to try to get as many eyes on that as possible, to get as many people to spend money on this movie as possible. And it's not limited to those. Those are just the action movies that I like. But, you know, comedies, horror rom-coms, all of these things, these are commonly known to be big money makers for Hollywood. And because of that, Hollywood tends to make these stories and these characters that sort of revolve around the values that most Americans find palatable for use in a story, because storytelling is inherently a conservative uh, proposition, because if you are reflecting good values, which is a conservative position, then you're going to have a good story. I could go through each of these as examples, but that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But the point is, that's the kind of movies that get made for the audience. And then there's another class of movies that are really only made to win Academy Awards. Because like 10 people see them, no one likes them, except for the people that vote for the Oscars. And then you have, you know, what was that movie that won a couple of years ago, Moonlight, which, you know, didn't even come close to commercial success and yet one movie of the year because it's about a gay black person, and it basically checked off all of the, the woke things on the checklist on woke bingo. Uh, it got all of the, the rows on woke bingo, and so because of that, the Academy felt that they had to make that one movie of the year because it fit all of their values. And so you have two different kind of movies, movies that are made with our values done for the general public, and movies that are made for a select few pretentious snobs in Hollywood that rate movies and thus give those movies awards. And this is the same thing that's going on with comics. They know that this is not going to sell comic books. They know that this is not going to appeal to mass audiences. And by the way, comic book readers as a general rule are pretty liberal. I'm kind of an outlier 
in that I'm a conservative comic book nerd. A lot of people that are into that kind of thing tend to be very liberal. But the thing is, there are tons of gay comic book characters, and those comics tend to not sell very well. Oh, they might sell some novelty issues here and there, but at the end of the day, they just don't turn enough profit to keep them going long term. And that's because even people that are okay with homosexuality, even people that would cheer this on and think that it's a good thing that there's representation, they might like it in the sense that it makes them feel good that that's going on, but not enough for them to actually read it. Because the thing is, it's hard for even those people to relate to a guy that is attracted to another guy. That's something that is foreign to them, even if they think there's nothing morally wrong with it. They still don't really want to read about a story about that at the end of the day, and they're not really willing to spend money on it because it's not something that they can personally relate to. And this has been proven over and over and over again. There's been gay characters in comics since the 80s, since before I was even born. And those characters tend to just not be very popular. There might be some exceptions, some that I'm not thinking of right now. But by and large, those characters don't break out. And those characters don't become big moneymakers. And so now what they're trying to do is they're trying to make old characters that are established, or at least wearing the mantle of an established character in the case of you know, Superman's son, who's the new Superman. They're trying to take those and co-opt them so that they can make people like them because it's based off of a character that they already like. It's not going to work. It's simply not going to work because it's too different from the original character. And the fact that they feel that they have to co-opt an existing character to make this work is indicative of the fact that they can't write for a compelling gay character that has mass appeal because that appeals to an extremely tiny minority. And that's not going to sell comics. And so the point is, they, they know that this is not going to make money. They know that there's not a large public outcry for this. They just want their woke friends in New York City to come by, pat them on the back, and talk about how brave and beautiful they are for putting this forward, and then everybody will forget about it two seconds later. And that's why I'm not really that upset about it. I mean, I do hate the fact that they're trying to co-opt these characters and trying to ruin them, but at the end of the day, I mean, I would just rather them write better stories, but at the end of the day, this isn't really going to affect all that much. Because these comic books that they're writing are going to go by the wayside, nobody's going to buy them, and then they'll go back to writing classic, com uh, classic comic book Superman, who, you know, has a crush on Lois Lane and winds up chasing after her and Wonder Woman and, and several other female characters within the DC Universe, because that's what people actually want. And the truth is, DC Comics knows that. They just refuse, uh, they're just doing this to try to get a backslap at some of the hoity-toity New York, you know, galas that they go to and talk about how great they are. But that's ultimately what's going on here. I did want to share this. Uh, Superman, this is the, the next thing that they've done in the article directly following the announcement that he's gay. Superman is making a big fight against climate change. Yeah, that's, that's a real panel from the comic book superman is there protesting the climate and by the way i didn't know this until i read the article here if you look at the sign that is held by that guy right behind him with pink by the way that's a new superman's boyfriend um that apparently is a direct reference to greta thunberg i did not know that but if you want an idea of how ridiculously woke these people are i'm a news person and i had no idea 
that that's a callback to something Greta Thunberg did. So these people, I mean, they now do I think that they know that they're not going to make money off this comic? Yes, I absolutely believe that. I stand by what I said. But the point is, they believe it, and they're like neck deep in this stuff because I didn't even know that. Um, but they're doing all this stuff, and I was sitting back just laughing at it. I was like, the whole point of a comic book is that it's a visual medium. It is a way to tell stories in book form to still have some visually stimulating assistance with that, something that's really cool, that the artwork is, is just part and parcel of what a comic book is. And, and I was just sitting back thinking, yeah, because why would you want to see somebody, you know, punch something in a superhero action comic, who, by the way, the original comic book to debut Superman was literally called Action Comic, when you could watch someone stand around holding a picket sign and protesting. <laughs> I mean, if that's not proof that they know this thing isn't going to make money, they know they're not actually going to try to turn profit with this thing, that it, it's just a, a dumb publicity stunt, so everybody in New York will, will give them a high five on this. That's proof of it right there. Like They're literally making a comic book where you're watching somebody protest as opposed to like, you know, punching doomsday or something like that. They know it's dumb and they know it's not going to make money. And, and I mean, that really does prove it. I will say one of the good things that came out of this, and this is not a conservative person or a conservative publication, but they did point out the stupidity of it. I really like this headline from Gizmodo, which I think captures the ridiculousness of Superman fighting climate change. DC Comics think Superman's best climate action is protest, not literally his frozen breath. I mean, the, the guy does have ice breath. You would think that if global warming was a problem, he'd just, you know, open up his lungs, blow into the atmosphere. Problem solved. We can all go home now. And the, the Gizmodo article, like, it's very clear when you read that. That person is not a conservative. They don't have a problem with the politics of it. They're actually on board with the climate change agenda. It's just, it is kind of silly for somebody as powerful as Superman and with all his abilities that his his reaction to climate change is, uh, I'm going to go out and protest, which is what every other schlub that has no superpowers is doing. So, you know, good on Gizmodo for pointing out the absurdity and having a little fun with that, even if it didn't necessarily fit their their political agenda. I will say that not everybody has bought into the insanity, though, at DC Comics. There's one colorist, colorist sorry, named Gabe Eltaib, I think is the way to say his name. And he actually quit over all this nonsense. And I got to say, good for him. Good for somebody saying, you know what? This is insane. We're not doing what I got into the industry to do. We're not doing things that are, you know, cool or heroic. We're just making propaganda pieces for the, the left and I'm out. And that's basically what he said. He did a long interview uh, with a with a comic book um, podcast and, and talked about this. And here's one of the things that he said in the podcast. This is coming from The Blaze media and i do want you to to call your attention to this where he says i'm finishing out my contract with dc and i'm tired of this i'm tired of them ruining these characters they don't have a right to do this he continued and then he goes on to give some rationale my grandpa almost died in world war ii we don't have a right to destroy this stuff that people died to give us it's a bunch of nonsense now that really is just an angry rant he doesn't make a lot of intellectual points 
But the underlying theme there is correct. It's as though the people that are writing these comics have no appreciation for their fans, no appreciation for their legacy or the the persona that these characters have evoked for decades of fanship now. There's just no respect for tradition, none of that. Because to them, the political message is more important than entertaining and more important than the fans. And that's why they're not going to make profit off it and they're not going to have fans, generations of fans that remember, oh, you remember that that really cool comic book, the one where Superman was outside with a picket sign protesting? Boy, that was that was really fun to read. When he says they're ruining the characters, I tend to not be as upset about that because I don't think they're ruining the character. Superman is always going to be Superman no matter... Uh, what idiot leftist takes over the reins of his story arcs from now on. Like, that doesn't ruin who the character has always been. But I understand the vitriolic response. I really do. I understand why you can be upset that this is something that is canon and in an official capacity because it is with DC Comics, who owns the character, trying to take this character who is the exact opposite of that and saying, this is who this person is now. But ultimately... Um, he really does hit the nail on the head, and that's why I actually really respect this colorist, because it wasn't just a, a random angry rant. He actually hits at the core of the problem in this next statement that he makes, where he says, what really ticked me off was saying truth, justice, and a better world. It was truth, justice, and the American way, said El Tabe. And that really is at the core of it. Not just the saying itself, but that they despise everything that Superman stands for. The reason that Superman's slogan was truth, justice, in the American way is because the guy, the character, is an American icon. He embodies everything that is American and heroic and noble, and they don't think that America is a noble country. They don't think that America is heroic. They don't think it's a very good place to live at all. And so the fact that Superman is like the personification of all of that they just detest that. Because you think about who Superman is. He is, at his core, a kid from out in the country, raised on the farm, who comes to the big city and makes a name of himself, a name for himself, both in the heroic field as Superman, but also in the professional field as Clark Kent. And finds a, a person to fall in love with and marries her, and depending on what version of the story you're reading, starts a family like i said there's some different versions where they can't have kids but the point is basically he's living out american values that's who this person is and even more so than that when representing americanism this is a private citizen who has absolutely nothing to gain from helping people who says i'm not going to wait for the government i'm not going to wait for somebody else i have the ability to help these people therefore i will do it I will do it for no other reason other than it is the right thing to do and I have a responsibility when I, because I have these abilities to use it to better my community and my fellow man. That's who Superman is. And that's what America is. And they hate that. You think about it, Superman is like the embodiment of everything the left detests. He's extremely masculine. He's strong. He's self-reliant. He is a white heterosexual Protestant, which, you know, they can't stand that either. And he's basically universally beloved on both sides of the aisle. 
And I mean, he just embodies all of that spirit of, of do it yourself and don't wait on the government and trust people. And, um, you know, you do things for others. And, and on top of that, he's a very overtly messianic figure. I mean, there's extremely strong symbolism and it was intentionally done by his creators to make him into sort of a Christ-like figure. And of course, that's the thing they detest the most. And because of that, they have to do one of two things. Either they have to tear him down and make him irrelevant, or they have to shift him into a symbol that is powerful for their side and something that they can use and they can point to. They've chosen to do the latter, but it's not going to work. Because in the public eye, at least the people that actually know Superman, they know who he really is and what he really stands for. These people obviously don't, or they do, and they hate it, and that's why they're trying to destroy it. But ultimately, the left would really much prefer an authoritarian Superman that just makes people do what he wants. They, they would prefer, like, Red Sun version of Superman or the Justice Lord version of Superman, uh, Ultraman, something to that effect. But Superman used to be universal. He used to be a unifying figure. He used to be something that all Americans could look to and say, like, that's the American ideal. This is a person that... His whole goal is to be so good that he inspires goodness in the average person. He, he wants to be inspirational, like a messiah, to other people. And the left just absolutely cannot stand that, and it shows in the way that they are trying to destroy him. They don't want a unifying figure. They want something that is polarizing and that drives conservatives away and upholds their values as the one and only true value. And that's why they don't like the idea that you could unite around the American way. And so this colorist actually hits the nail absolutely on the head. That is the core of the issue. The whole gay thing and having a black version of Superman and everything else, those are symptoms of the underlying disease, which is they hate Superman and who he stands for. And so they try to co-opt him for, for their side because they realize if they left him as is, he's actually a very powerful tool for the American side for those who want to conserve American traditions and values. And they can't have that, so they try to turn them into a tool for their own use. But our second Daily Dose of Stupid, and this isn't going to be a long one, but I did have to mention it because I found it kind of sad but hilarious at the same time. I mean, it's not funny what they're doing, but it is funny how their priorities are so backwards. Like, you, you, can't, you can't look at this and not see how they don't see it. So this is a tweet from our State Department earlier this week. I can go ahead and pull it up. There we go. So this is this is the official State Department Twitter. Today on International Pronouns Day, <laughs> we share why many people list pronouns on their email and social media profiles. Read more here, and it takes you to an article that the State Department put together about why Americans list their pronouns like she, him, and they, her, and Z, Zier, and, um, you know, uh, Peach Cobbler, and Jupiter Gender, and all that other nonsense. I'm so glad that the State Department's priorities are in the right place. Because, you know, with everything that's going on with China, basically looking like they're going to invade Taiwan any day now, and with Russia annexing Crimea and trying to take over the Ukraine, and both being our biggest geopolitical adversaries by a long shot and, and mounting military power and you know Russia trying to 
take over the energy sector for the entirety of Europe. It's good to know that the State Department is working on the real issues like this and, and not on other things or, you know, elections or anything of that nature. Even if you're on the left, genuine question here, even if you are on the left, do you not see that this is not something the State Department should be doing? I genuinely want to know that because the State Department, I don't see how this has anything to do with foreign policy, how it in any way affects our foreign relations with other countries. Why is the State Department wasting its time on useless crap like this when it could be doing something of actual productive value? That's what I don't get here. I mean, at the end of the day, does them tweeting out about this bother me because I think that it's wrong and stupid? Sure, I, I, I would say that. But even if it wasn't something that I thought was stupid, like let's say um, they were talking about, I don't know, the farm bill or something like that. Why would the State Department be talking about that? That's not within their wheelhouse. I mean, heck, if they were talking about something like religious freedom, something that I'm very much for, I would be kind of like, but it's the State Department. And if they were talking about it for another country, maybe that would be something that would be within their, their area of expertise. But why is the State Department talking about this anyway. I, I don't understand how this is something that is positive, especially since they were talking about it in the context of, well, you know, some people put it on their email and social media. You guys are the State Department. What, what are you doing wasting your time with dumb crap like this? And I can tell, the thing is, it's not a mystery. I can tell you why people post pronouns on their email and their social media profile. All it is is a virtue signal. Do you know that I've never actually seen somebody on social media who their pronouns didn't fit their biological gender? I mean, you have to remember that the trans community is like 0.2% of the entire American population. You know, it's not at all uncommon for me to scroll through and like anywhere from a third to a half of the people that I go through on my newsfeed have their pronouns listed on there. And every single time, it's just the pronoun that you would expect because it's either him, her for a guy or she, or she, her for a, a girl or whatever, whatever the standard one is, you know, he, him or, or she, her, I guess. Um, but whenever that is the case, it's always just a normal person with normal pronouns. They're doing it to signal to other people. Oh, I'm in, I'm inside the woke community. I'm one of you. That's all it is. It's just a signal to other leftists that I'm on board with the whole trans thing. And so it's, it's not useful. It's not something that, you know, to make a big deal out of. All it is is leftist high-fiving one another. That's really, at the end of the day, all that it is. So, you know, I solved the mystery State Department. You can stop worrying about it. I just told you why they do this. And what's funny is, this is the same State Department that just a few weeks ago when the Taliban was taking over Afghanistan, they were like, yeah, but we're really, really concerned about the fact that the Taliban doesn't have enough female leaders. I'm like, you idiots do realize these are the people that are going door to door raping 12 year olds like that. I, I'm not saying that female having no female leadership in a country is something that is necessarily a good thing. I'm just saying that, like, when you got people going door to door, raping 12 year olds and burning Christians alive, maybe this is not at the top of your priority list. And maybe you shouldn't really be surprised when they're not like, you know what, we really do need to have a female on the, <laughs> in the governing body here. 
when this is how they treat women. Like, maybe deal with the bigger issue here. Can we please have some level of, of perspective or a sense of, of priorities here? But the State Department can't do that because they have their head shoved so far up their butt when it comes to this woke stuff that they want to treat these people, which are essentially 8th century bloodthirsty savages, as though they're somebody that they can deal with in the modern world. That If they, we just sat down and reasoned with them, that they would be able to, to have female leadership. Uh, no, if you're encouraging people to go around raping 12-year-olds, I think that your sensibilities when it comes to that issue are a little far gone, and we're going to have to do a little bit more groundwork before we get you to the level where we can talk about having some females in leadership positions. Call me crazy, but I think that that is a correct assessment of what is going on here. And to that point, with what's going on in, in Afghanistan, when the State Department could actually be worried about the absolute disaster that that is instead of posting things about why people have pronouns on their social media. This is a headline from Reuters while that is going on. Taliban praises suicide bombers and offers families cash and land. The Taliban praised suicide bombers who died during war against the former government, in other words, the government that we helped set up, and its Western allies, by the way, that would be us, and offered their families sums of cash and promises of land the movement's interior ministry said in a statement. I'm not even going to pretend to be able to pronounce that name. The acting interior minister, who has a 10 million U.S. bounty on his head, as a specially designated global terrorist, met the families at a ceremony in the Intercontinental Hotel in Kabul, uh, Kabul which was itself targeted by suicide bombers in 2018. Official photographs of the meeting on Tuesday obscured his face. In his speech, the minister praised the jihad and sacrifices of the martyrs and uh, Mahidin, I don't know, and called them heroes of Islam and the country, the minister said in a statement on Twitter. Now, I want you to notice that before we get into the content of what he's actually saying, notice at the end of that, this was a public statement on Twitter. They are so bold and so brazen and so convinced that the American military is not going to do anything to stop them, regardless of what they say. They are saying this publicly on Twitter, an American media company. This is a social media network that is based in America. They know that they're going to see it. And they're so convinced that the State Department or the military is not going to do a darn thing about it they don't have a problem with posting it in a public place like this. And considering that this is going on while our State Department is tweeting out about gender pronouns, I think that the Taliban is 100% right on that. Think about this. This is the newly reformed Taliban, remember, where Jin Saki was telling us how businesslike and professional that they are and how they're, they're willing to work with us and how we're going to have to trust the Taliban on some of these things. Yeah, when you're giving money and cash rewards to people that are suicide bombing people just for being American or even their own people for helping Americans, that's not a person you can reason with or have a working relationship with. And yet, the Biden administration is kidding themselves thinking that they can reason with these people. These people, as I said, are 8th century savages. They understand exactly one thing. 
when Trump dropped a Moab in the middle of their backyard, we didn't really have any problems out of them. Because they were terrified that the next one was going to be on their heads. Unfortunately, because of who these people are and the way that they live, the threat of intimate, uh, intimate death, intimate death, uh, imminent death, is the only thing they actually understand. And this shows that. For the evil that they are, they are committed to the cause. They do believe that anybody that helps America is evil and deserves to be suicide bombed. And they praise the suicide bombers that do it. And the truth is, this is not a problem that is only existing in the Taliban. Lest you think that, oh, well, this is just the Taliban that's doing these crazy things, praising suicide bombers and martyrs. Um, and, and really, the poor Afghan people uh, are being really sort of run roughshod over. Okay, first of all, the reason the Taliban operates in Afghanistan is because they find that there's lots of people there that they can recruit that agree with them. And a Pew poll found that over 40% of the average Afghan actually approves of suicide bombings and thinks that it's a good thing. And so the idea that this is just a, a tiny minority of outliers and it's not. the reason that we couldn't bring a stable government to the Afghan people is because they want to be ruled by Sharia law. They want a religious theocracy where the book of the Quran is their law. That's what they want. You cannot force freedom on people that don't want it. These people want to be enslaved. They want to live the way that the Quran tells them to live, which is in slavery. They don't want freedom, and we can't make them want it. They have to want it for themselves. When we obtained our freedom, we fought off our tyrants with guns. We were willing to die for it. They're willing to die for the opposite. They're willing to die to preserve their own tyranny. And you can't really do a whole lot with that. I know it's sad. I know it's unfortunate. I hate the fact that there are people that want to live this way. It saddens me. It really does. That somebody that is an image bearer of God, one of his children, does not understand his blessings or want to, to be a part of that. But that's who these people are. And we can't just deal with the world the way that we wish that it were. We have to deal with the world as it is. And the simple fact is the reason that the Taliban had this much success, the reason they were able to take over the country in such a short amount of time, is because these people are 8th century savages that want to live in a theocracy run by the teachings of Muhammad. And when that's what they want, we could come in and stabilize it, which we did for 20 years, but we cannot make those people establish a government for themselves that respects human rights and liberty. We can't do it. We can't make them do it. And that's the thing that the Biden administration doesn't understand. They, they want to act like the Taliban is just, you know, a handful of, you know, somewhat reasonable because now they're reformed. But just, you know, a handful of radicals that are the problem. And really, the people are good. No, the people are not good. The people are, are like an ancient Canaanite nation. And, you know, can, can we do work? Are there good people there? Are there people that might accept the message of Christ and change their life around? And yes, I'm a missionary. I believe that. I'm just saying, as the country is now, we cannot deal with them 
in the manner in which we wish that they were. We have to deal with them as they actually are. And what they actually are is a country that largely supports terrorism and thinks that it's a good thing. I wish that it were not the case, but it is. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today does come from the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at another episode in the life of David. This one's going to be a slightly longer reading, but I think we really have to read the whole story to get the proper context. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Remember, this happens while David is on the run from King Saul. 1 Samuel 25, verses 2 through 13. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, but, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And this is what you shall say. Have a long life, peace to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all, the, all that you have. And David rebuked his men with these words, and did not allow... Uh-oh. Sorry, I'm, I'm missing one there. Don't know how that happened. Sorry about that. Uh, now then, I have heard you say that uh, you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not harmed them, nor has anything of theirs gone missing in all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at your hand to your servant and your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal in accordance with all these words in David's name, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today that are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water? and my meat, and that I have slaughtered for my shears, and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men made their way back and returned, and they came and informed him in accordance with these words. Then David said to his men, Each of you, strap on his sword. So each man strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword. And about four hundred men went up with uh, behind David, while two hundred stayed with the baggage. Just to place it into context without condoning one side or the other, or condoning the actions of David, you do have to understand, especially as soldiers and as a person that was in charge of men, David was somebody that very much lived by the honor system. 
In other words, when he was being honored, he showed honor to other people, and he tried to extend grace and honor to other people. But when he was insulted, he believed that there needed to be some kind of retribution. Now, we see this in like old movies. Culturally, this used to be something that was more prominent than it is now. Uh, for example, in ancient Greece, it was a, a very big deal to be honored by other people, and if you were insulted, you took vengeance on them for insulting you. Uh, this was also true in like uh, the medieval era with knights and chivalry. Uh, it was also the place where musketeers would do this. For example, in France, they, they believed that if you insulted them, that it was worth fighting over. Even in more recent cultures, like around the time of our revolution, if you insulted someone bad enough, they would engage you in a duel. And so this is what's actually going on here. So you might think, well, it's, it's awful small and petty for David to do this just based on being insulted. And to be honest, I agree with you. However, it is important to realize that culturally, this is something that would not have been all that bizarre. Because it's not just that Nabal refused David's kindness and, and sort of, you know, spat in his face. On top of that, he went out of his way to insult him. When he says the phrase, well, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? He knows who David is. What he's doing is he's trying to say, you're of no consequence to me. You're... Because even if he hadn't known who David was, he wouldn't have said it in this way. He is going out of his way to try to insult David. He's trying to say, you're nothing. Your name means nothing to me. I don't know who you are. Uh, you know, you need to go off somewhere else and don't expect anything out of me. Don't let the door hit you in the behind on the way out. Now, we're going to talk about David's reaction to that in a second, but right now I want to really zero in on what Nabal is doing. First of all, it's important to note, and I don't know if this was really his name or this was added later by an editor, but Nabal's name actually does mean fool. That's literally the translation, and uh, his wife will actually make an, an analogy to this later, which makes me believe that this really was his name. But Nabal's name actually does mean fool, and he lives up to his name. And that's a, a point that the Bible itself goes out of its way to, uh, to point out. But this is somebody who, when met with great kindness from David, it really just kind of spits it back in his face. That David goes out of his way to try to extend some grace and some friendship and does ask for something in return, but he does so very graciously and humbly he actually says, your son David, that is a term of humility. And so this is tantamount to David coming in very humbly, making a request, giving him honor, uh, treating him and, and speaking to him in a way that even shows submission on his part. And the first thing Nabal does is insult him. And so David, who is somebody that doesn't necessarily do this very often, you can understand why he's very taken aback by this because he was doing this and going out of his way to try to be humble and kind and gracious as possible, and immediately is met with nothing but scorn and vitriol. And I think that we've probably all done this. That's a very difficult thing to deal with emotionally. When you go out of your way to try to be extra nice to somebody, and their immediate reaction is to dislike you and to talk bad about you. I mean, that, that's a hard thing to deal with. Even for somebody that's pretty thick-skinned like myself, that is a difficult situation to have to deal with, and, and David is no different here. But it's important to also understand that when it comes to this request of he's a very rich person, he's got the means to do it, and David is asking for a little bit of help here because his men have been actually been helping out 
his people with his business. They have done work uh, to try to help them, to protect their flocks, that they've been among them, been living with them. And he's saying, so could we get a little compensation for that? Could we help out with it? And essentially what Nabal is doing here is he is openly rejecting an opportunity to do something gracious and to be hospitable. Now, again, this is something that we're kind of unconnected to in our culture, but you have to understand, especially in Jewish culture, this was a very, very big deal. Hospitality is something that is highly valued, and it goes all the way back to Abraham. You may notice that Abraham is very gracious about guests and travelers, especially when it comes to people like Melchizedek, like the angels that visited him. Um, and, and specifically in the Old Testament, there's several narratives that take place before this where hospitality is met with vitriol like this, uh, whether it's in Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole ordeal with Lot, or the, the thing with the tribe of Benjamin later on where people treat their guests and strangers in their town very harshly. Hospitality was a big deal to a Jew at this time. And the fact that Nabal had the opportunity to host guests and not only said no, but specifically went out of his way to scorn them. That is something that was a very serious offense in Judea in this time period. And so once you understand the cultural context, you kind of understand David's reaction a little bit better. Nabal has done something very evil here. He's not only just not done, he's not only avoided doing something nice, he's actually done something wrong. And so David, in recognition of this, now reacts to it by taking his army and plans to go out and basically kill not only Nabal, but anybody associated with him, the people that work for him, that kind of thing. He is about to take vengeance on Nabal in an extremely harsh and violent way. This was a bad idea. David is actually painted somewhat as a villain here. And by the way, spoils the story a little bit, but we're going to get to the fact that David himself even acknowledges this is not the right reaction here. But my point is, we see here that David is kind of being unreasonable. Because think about this, he comes to him saying, look how my men have been among your men and we haven't done any harm to them. We've actually been protecting the flocks. You can ask, we have the superior might, the superior power. We could have gone through and robbed them or taken things from them. We didn't do any of those things. We've been very nice. We were just passing through here. And notice that Nabal's reaction to this is not good. But isn't it kind of weird that David is like, see how we've not done any of these things? We've not hurt anybody. We've not robbed you. And then when he insults him, he's like, okay, now we're going to rob you. Now we're going to... He's saying that this is the right thing to do and we've done this because it's, it's right. But now we're going to not do the right thing because you didn't do the right thing to us. See, what David's doing is he is justifying his own bad behavior, his own behavior that he is admitting would be wrong. And he's actually testifying would be the wrong thing to do earlier by doing the wrong thing that he admitted would be wrong because somebody else did something wrong to him. It's the two wrongs make a right thing, and it's, it's just not good. It's not something that God would hold as a standard. Bad action never justifies bad action from somebody else. And really, David's attitude here is wrong. He has done a kind thing. He has done a gracious and humble thing. But he acts as though he's entitled to Nabal's stuff because of it. And if they're not going to give it to us, well, then we're going to take it. 
Okay, well, then that just makes you no different than a bully. That makes you no different than a thug or a roving band of, of bandits. And David, kind of short-sighted here by his own rage at the insult, doesn't see that. Since we were talking about Superman earlier today, I'll make a Superman reference here. One of the best scenes in Smallville, which is a, a story about Superman, Superman saves Lex Luthor's life when his car goes over a bridge. And his reaction to this is that he buys Clark Kent, Superman, a brand new truck. And as a 15-year-old, he's really excited about this. It's a brand new truck with all the bells and whistles. He's always driven like an, an old uh, GMC Sierra that's kind of a piece of junk. And so seeing this brand new shiny truck is something that really excites him. And then his dad doesn't let him have it. And he doesn't understand why. And he, he's arguing with his dad about why he should be able to keep the truck. And he says, Dad, I did save a man's life. And Jonathan Kent's answer is just one of the best scenes in the entire series, right there in the first episode. He turns to Clark and he says, do you think you deserve a reward for that? You think you're entitled to something because you saved a man's life? I expect you to save a man's life regardless, is essentially what he's saying. You don't do the right thing because you expect a reward out of it. You do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And that's what God expects out of us. That's what he expected out of David here. God expected David to do the right thing, to treat other people kindly and with hospitality, even if other people don't do the same thing to you. That's what God wanted out of his servants and what he calls us to do to this very day. We don't just do the right thing when we're expecting to get something out of it, which is what David kind of does here. He expects to have his men fed and, and be able to take part in some of the things that he did after doing some nice things for Nabal and showing him some hospitality. I mean, it's kind of like people that uh, give you a gift and they get very upset when you don't get a thank you card. Now, granted, a polite person is supposed to do that. They're supposed to send a thank you card and, and be gracious. But if you got them a present just so you could get some gratitude out of them, you didn't really get them a present for the right reasons. And that's kind of the sentiment that Jonathan Kent is espousing and the same kind of sentiment that the Bible espouses. We should be doing the right thing because it's what God expects of us. Our Heavenly Father, just like in, in the Superman story, his father expected him to do the right thing because that's the person he raised him to be. You don't do it so you can get a reward. And once you do it, you don't expect to get something out of it. You don't deserve it for doing the right thing. That's, that's the bare minimum. That's what I expect out of you. And I think really the message to take home here is don't let another person's sin prompt us to sin. People are going to treat us wrong. People are going to persecute us. Jesus says, take up a cross daily and follow me. That is his command to his people. He's not saying you're going to be free from persecution. He's guaranteeing it. With that in mind, he expects you not to sin as the result of that. Just like he went through crowds of people, even though he was completely innocent and was beat on and spit upon and mocked and ridiculed. And yet, he didn't react. He didn't, he, even though he would have been justified in taking vengeance on those people, he didn't. Because ultimately, he recognized that they're image bearers of, and God's children as well. And so, don't let another person's sin prompt you to sin. Be like Jesus and do the right thing even when other people treat you poorly.
stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.